Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Jordan Smith, a senior reporter for The Intercept. Welcome to Descent, an intercepted miniseries about the Supreme Court. In the northern panhandle of Idaho, nestled below the Selkirk Mountains, is a body of water that the state touts as its crown jewel. Just miles from the Canadian border, Priest Lake is 19 miles long, up to 369 feet deep, and has a surface area of nearly 37 miles. The area is home to all kinds of wildlife, including bears and bald eagles. And it's a popular vacation spot. There's boating, and I've read excellent fishing. According to the local Chamber of Commerce, it's a magnificent spot to take in the Northern Lights. It's also known for its pristine waters. Dawn breaks on the northern end of Priest Lake on a quiet July morning, casting a golden glow on the water. A lone angler fishes off the point of the new 1,500-foot-long breakwater structure, while a water skier carves perfect turns. In fact, there are four large wetland complexes along the lake's 62-mile shoreline that help to keep the lake's water so pristine and its rich habitat intact. One of those wetlands is toward the southern end of the lake, known as the Kalispell Bay Fen. And it is ground zero for the case we're going to talk about today. Sackett versus EPA, a challenge to the Federal Clean Water Act, the outcome of which could further gut our ability to combat climate change. We're going to jump into all the specifics of the case with our guest, Sam Sankar, the Senior Vice President for Programs at Earth Justice. Sam has spent his career working in environmental law, including as a trial attorney for the Justice Department. Earth Justice is a leading environmental law organization representing more than 1,000 pro bono clients in cases combating climate change. Sam, welcome to Descent. Thank you. Uh, I'm very glad to be here. To start, can you give us a bit of background on the Clean Water Act, what prompted its passage, what does it say, and broadly, what is it intended to do? So the Clean Water Act is one of the nation's core environmental laws, most of which were passed in the early 1970s, right after the initial Earth Day and this sort of congressional and national recognition that the that environmental degradation was becoming a nationwide problem. So it, it came in there with the Clean Air Act and a lot of the other laws that we all think of as the laws that are core to protecting our environment. What it basically says is that two agencies, the Army Corps of Engineers and the US EPA, have a responsibility for protecting the chemical, biological, and physical integrity of our nation's waters. 
And uh, the trick in all of these things is defining what do you mean by the nation's waters? And that's what this case is about. But broadly speaking, what the act says is in order to protect those waters, a couple of things have to be true. Number one, you're not allowed to pollute those waters. Um, if you want it, and of course, we all know that, every, that, that lots of people are polluting waters all the time. So there's a significant proviso unless you get a permit. So typically, if you're, say, a sewage treatment plant, you go to EPA and you say, hey, we need to treat sewage and we need to get a permit. And EPA issues you a permit and says these are the, the rules you have to follow in order to discharge that pollution to that waterway. And importantly, one of the kinds of pollution that are covered pretty sensibly is dredging and filling. So if you are near a waterway and you fill it in, that's something that Congress cared a lot about both because it can change the kind of waterway that you have, but also because dredging is a, is a very important form of pollution to waterways, dredging and filling, both. Great. So let's talk a little bit about wetlands. We'll get into what they are in the Clean Water Act in a minute, but first, I think if, if you could explain what role wetlands play in protecting our waters and our communities, that would be helpful. Sure. Well, wetlands are our waters. As anyone who's spent time on a lake or a or a river knows, when you get out of your boat near the shore, it doesn't immediately transform from flowing water into into dry land. There's a huge amount of territory in this country and indeed the world that is in this shifting boundary between deep flowing water or deep bodies of water and dry, dry land. And wetlands are waters, right? Wetlands are the parts of the of our nation's waters that are closely tied up in the soil underneath that are right there. So you can say that wetlands protect our nation's waters, but what I would say is that our wetlands are protecting the surface waters, the parts of our waters that we think of as the rivers and the lakes and the streams. And wetlands protect those waters in several ways. First of all, they're really important buffers for pollution and sediment. So when you have a rainstorm or when you have uh, uh, surface water runoff, wetlands trap a lot of the sediment, they collect a lot of that pollution, and they prevent it from entering the nation's waterways. Secondarily, they're really important uh, because they maintain water flow. So as we've seen all over this country, as climate change is changing our weather patterns and precipitation patterns, flooding and drought are huge problems in this nation. And wetlands are critical buffers for both flooding and drought. And that means when it rains a whole lot and you're trying to avoid a flood, you know, those wetlands are absorbing. They're like a sponge. And in times of drought where there's no water, well, the wetlands are releasing that water back into the waterways, which is a good thing. And lastly, they're critical biological parts of the nation's waterways. So everyone knows that, you know, frogs don't lay their eggs in flowing water. <laughs> if you want to have a healthy ecosystem, you need to have these wetlands be healthy as well, because that's where our fish and aquatic life, those are critical areas for the biological integrity of free-flowing and open waterways. So now let's talk about how wetlands come into play in the Clean Water Act, um, how they're talked about in the act. And then if you could sort of walk us through how that language has been interpreted by the court. Sure. Okay. There's a lot in that question. And in fact, yeah. <laughs> inside of that question is the entire arc of, of this case. And the Supreme Court itself spent two hours talking about it after writing reams and reams of paper about it. So I'll try to do this at a high level. Okay. When Congress wrote the Clean Water Act, um, it said that the waters it wanted to protect were navigable waters. But 
it didn't really explain what navigable waters means. Instead, it actually used a very expansive term, the waters of the United States. And so that's where this acronym WOTUS comes from, by the way. So waters of the United States. And it made it clear throughout the act that it wasn't going to draw, uh, take a Sharpie and draw a line around that, that it was relying on scientists and experts in agencies to figure out precisely what that means. So shortly after that, the Army Corps put out a regulation that expressed a fairly narrow construction of that term that basically said it's the traditional navigable waters that go down these, you know, the, the major stuff. And immediately everybody said, wait a minute, this doesn't work. We passed this law in 1972 because the nation's waterways were falling apart. The chemical, biological integrity of the waters was really degraded. The image that was burned into public consciousness is the burning of the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. And, and everybody said, well, wait a minute. No, no, no. It's, it's more expansive than that very narrow traditional test. So uh, the Army Corps went back and wrote new regulations that included coverage of wetlands that said the, that this term, waters of the United States, includes these waters that are bound up with the shore, the wetlands. And Relatively soon thereafter, that or thereafter, Congress passed some amendments to the Clean Water Act in 1977. And during the course of those amendments, developers and industries pushed really hard. They said, "Hey, Congress, rewrite the law to make it clear that the Army Corps and EPA are wrong about this—that wetlands aren't covered." And in fact, they put a bill in, and the bill got passed by the House, but the Senate said, "Uh-uh, no way." And that's not what's supposed to happen here. And in fact, what happened was a law got passed to amend the Clean Water Act, and it included language in there that made it very clear that the Clean Water Act was going to protect wetlands. In fact, the Supreme Court said so uh, itself in a, in a case analyzing that language. It said, it, it said that that new language in 1977 made it unequivocal that Congress meant to include wetlands. And yet, and yet... That doesn't sit well with a lot of folks. So the developer, the development industry and a lot of other industries have been pushing over and over to get what they couldn't get in those amendments back in 1977. And uh, since they can't get Congress to do it, they've been trying a, a new approach, and that is to get the courts to narrow the interpretation of this, to read the very same words differently than courts have been reading it for a long time. And so the Sackett case that is going on at the Supreme Court is the culmination, a culmination of that effort to say, if we, if we can't get the lawmakers to change the law, then maybe we can get the judges to change the law. So I think before we go any further, I'm going to uh, give a shot at describing the property at issue in this case, which is owned by Chantel and Michael Sackett, so that folks can maybe get an image in their mind. Um, so the Sackett's property is just under two-thirds of an acre and it sits 300 feet north of Priest Lake. At the south end of the property is a road that separates it from a cluster of houses along the lakeshore. There are no houses on either side of their property, and just to the north is Kalispell Bay Road. On the other side of that road is a large wetland complex known as the Kalispell Bay Fen, which included the Sackett's property before the road went in. That main fen is still connected to the Sackett property via a shallow subsurface flow of water. Also on the north side of Kalispell Bay Road, 
just 30 feet from the Sackett's property line, is an unnamed tributary that carries water from the wetland complex southwest from the Sackett property to Kalispell Creek, which then drains into Priest Lake. I should also mention that that at the shoreline by the houses just south of the Sackett property are pipes that also carry water and that drains into the lake. Okay. <laughs> For viewers or, or listeners, I should say, who are struggling with this narrative explanation, it's totally hard to understand, you know, the, this situation uh, dissolved into <laughs> into a bunch of, of words. But you can look at pictures. There are pictures in the record of this case. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think uh, anybody who looks at the pictures of the the process when they caught this, the sackets filling this thing in midway, <laughs> You see an awful lot of water. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that for sure. For sure. Absolutely. Because I was going to say, well, like with that description in mind, maybe people can roll it around a little in their heads. <laughs> but yes, you can find pictures. I want to get into the facts of the case. And so I want you to tell us what the question is that the court is being asked to weigh in on and how the case got to the court in the first place. Sure. So... As with all legal questions, as with all good legal questions, this one comes up wrapped up in uh, a wonderful set of facts, and that's how judges do law. Congress writes laws in the abstract, but judges should be deciding cases in very specific instances. And in the specific instance here, we have this family or this couple, the, the Sackets, and they bought a piece of land in 2004. Um, and they wanted to develop it. And as, as you said, it's, it was connected to these nearby fens. And I think th- there's been a lot of argument about what the status of the, of the land is. So we don't have to describe it any further. But they bought the land. And three years later, they decided they wanted to fill it in. Now, before they had purchased it, about you know, something, I think in 1996 or so, the prior owners had said, hey, is this a, is this a wetland that's covered by the Clean Water Act? And they'd actually had uh, folks from the government come out and look at it. And they said, yeah, no, this is, this is covered by the Clean Water Act. And if you want to get a permit to fill it in, this is how you'd go about getting a permit. And that's an important fact, right? Nobody said they couldn't do it. They just said, you need to get a permit. So the Sacketts um, decided to fill it in without getting a permit. So they, they got 1,700 cubic yards of gravel. And anybody who's ever, as I have, tried to shovel a cubic yard of mulch when they were a teenager and their dad asked to do it, uh, that's a massive amount of fill. So they're filling this thing in. And somewhere in the middle of this, this is a, a, a very you know, pristine area and a lake that's very pretty. And a lot of the na- you know, I'm, one of the neighbors said, hey, I, I don't know what these guys are doing. And they, and they phoned in a tip. And uh, some folks from the the government came out and said, um, "Look, you need to you need to get a permit here. You can't you can't do it this way. So stop what you're doing." And when they came out and talked to him, the folks who they talked to was the excavation company that was actually filling it in, and that excavation company was actually owned by the Sacketts. So the Sacketts were people who were pro- professionally specializing in this sort of work, and one could only imagine that they were pretty aware of what they were getting themselves into by filling this stuff without a permit. Anyway, they go ahead and they fill this in, and then they and then they, they got into a legal battle. They said, we are um, suing EPA to force, uh, to, to say that we, we, can't, we can't be stopped from doing this. And that case, uh, which started 
you know, quite a while ago, has wound its way up to the Supreme Court before this. And the first time it went up to the Supreme Court, the question was whether or not the Sacketts could really bring a lawsuit like this um, at this preliminary stage, right, when EPA had not actually exacted penalties or anything against them. And the court said, yeah, you, you can. Uh, and so now what we see is that it's, it's gone all the way back down to the lower courts and it's all the way back up. So we're 15 years now, 16 years, I guess, after that initial initial action and the Sacketts are, are are still in the Supreme Court. The case has become a bit of a cause celeb for those who want to restrict the scope of the, the Clean Water Act and a, and a bit of a head scratcher for many of us who want to defend it. Um, yeah, I, I, I was going to say I wanted to talk about the Sacketts a little bit more and you kind of got to it. I think it's definitely sort of emphasizing that the property was determined to be a protected wetland back in 1996. And and again, when you look at the photos of the site, it's like even with all that fill, there's water everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like There's water all everywhere that they haven't filled in. It's just like water. So Justice Sonia Sotomayor raised this in oral arguments in an exchange with Brian Fletcher, who is representing the EPA. Your adversary, the other side, I shouldn't call him adversary, your, the other side, argued that Mr. Sackett could not tell this was a marshland. Is that true? Because you said the first thing is it has to be a wetland. So I, I don't know what Mr. Sackett could tell, and I don't want to speak to that. What I can speak to is what's in the record, which is communications from the Army Corps to the prior owner in 1996 saying this is a jurisdictional wetland. You would need a permit to build. Here's information about how to seek nationwide permits. And we also have the pictures of the property that are at Petition Appendix 37 to 39 and also in the Joint Appendix. Now, we don't have pictures before it was filled in with gravel, but the pictures after it was filled in with gravel show that the parts that are not filled with gravel have standing water in them. Uh, and also the Sackett's own environmental consultant who came and looked at the property confirmed the Corps' judgment that these are wetlands. I think it's also worth emphasizing that although they're now separated by the larger fen across the street by Kalispell Bay Road, historically before the road was built, that wasn't true. It was all part of one wetlands complex and the whole fin drained down through the Sackett's property and into to Priest Lake. So kind of like you seem to be suggesting, I find it a little hard to believe that they would not, it would not have occurred to the Sackets, that it might be connected to the Fen, and, and even harder to understand given that they own the construction and excavation company. So one would think they maybe run against this kind of thing at least once before. But their attorney, Damien Schiff, disputed that they knew the property was in a wetland before purchasing it. In his closing statements, Schiff was channeling some like heavy victim energy that the Sacketts are being abused by the big, mean old government. And it was a vibe that appeared to resonate with at least a couple of the justices. Let's listen to a bit of an exchange between Schiff and Justice Neil Gorsuch. And, 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 and that is what's being asked, is, is a person who purchased a property with, with a sewer hookup a block from a lake with a subdivision between you and the lake and a road on the other side <clears throat> is supposed to know that that's a water of the United States, that piece of property, or else what? What, what, are, the, what are the penalties associated with this? What, what was threatened to your clients, and what, what does one face in these circumstances? Well, certainly for the Sacketts in particular, they were threatened with significant civil and administrative penalties, and of course also the continuing liability of having to restore the property to the way it was before they began any work, but also, there is lingering over all of this discussion the threat of criminal penalties. And I think this is particularly important 
because the waters of the United States is as much relevant to the criminal portions of the Clean Water Act as the civil portions. And notably, other justices were like, all you had to do was ask if it was covered, which, again, rather unbelievably, they didn't appear to do. Justice Katanji Brown Jackson was among the justices who thought that was an issue. Yes, I just I just wanted to follow up um, on Justice Gorsuch's very fair points, which were my points. How do, how do people know? Is there a process by which a homeowner can ask? Yes. Uh, any homeowner can ask the Corps for a jurisdictional determination. The Corps makes those available free of charge. And so you're not really facing criminal liability without the opportunity to get an assessment from the government regarding your particular circumstances. That's correct. All right. <laughs> so there we go. So there's so many things to say here. <laughs> so, you know, my, in my current job, I'm a, I run a, a very large public interest environmental law firm called Earth Justice. But at previous points in my life, I've been a lawyer for industry and also for the federal government. And in particular, I was a, a Justice Department lawyer. And one of the things I did was try to enforce cases like this. And I can tell you that the idea that the government is running around criminally prosecuting people in these situations for for truly, you know, innocent uh, accidental developments of these kinds of property is beyond ludicrous. It's it's hilarious. You would get thrown out of the building if you said to your supervisor, I want to sue this couple they had, you know, in this situation. And to be clear, nobody has ever actually done that. There, it is an, an imagined uh, set of threats from, from these folks. In order to win in a criminal case, you have to show all kinds of intent, mental conditions that you could never prove in the situation that these folks are, are imagining. Um, in addition, uh, as you yourself have pointed out, right, this is a, a couple who owned an excavation company. You know what happened here. I think we all know what happened here. They thought that they were pretty sure what would happen if they went and asked for a permit, that there would be conditions and there were things they have to deal with. And they did what a lot of people do when they put up a fence next to their neighbor's yard or when they do something in the city and they hope nobody's looking. They build a little addition on and they hope nobody notices. And when it when somebody does notice and when somebody says, hey, you needed to do it differently, they claim a whole lot of innocence. I would venture to say most of your listeners have been there at least once, whether it's at a stoplight or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> out, out in back of your property. And it's it, it, we understand that people do it. But then to claim that, you know, that in this situation they were completely ignorant is, I think, kind of ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a little bit of that in, in the minor forms, it'd be more like the whole uh Better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Exactly. But, but see here, I, exactly. I think it's, I, I don't know. And this is just me. I, I think that's a little too generous. I mean, particularly when you read through the docket for the case, you're just struck by how many amicus briefs are in there that have been filed by industry groups. Mining, construction, agriculture, like big agro. So can you talk a bit about who is backing their position and, you know, I guess essentially what they've done, right? And about what their interests are or might be. Sure. Well, the Sackets are being represented by a, a law firm that is heavily bankrolled by industry interests. And as you've noticed, the industry interests that are filing all these briefs are not 
innocent landowner couples in the arid West cure, you know, wondering if they will be mousetrapped. No, these are, these are polluting industries that are fully aware of what they're doing and simply don't want to have to follow the laws. They don't want the laws to cover them because the scope of the clean water act is really important. If you are a mining company, um, right now you have to follow laws that require you not to dig up all the wetlands or fill in the nearby streams or, or do things that cost you money, of course, but protect the rest of us. And if those laws didn't exist, if the Supreme Court said, well, this law that has been the same for 50 years is now different, that is a, that's a profitable bonanza for you. Now you don't have to protect those areas. So the reason those industries are filing all those amicus briefs is not because they have some abstract idea of what should be protected. It's because they don't want to have to protect the environment. And if the Supreme Court reduces the scope of the Clean Water Act, there's less of the environment that the law protects. In contrast, Earth Justice penned an amicus brief on behalf of 18 Native tribes. Can you talk a little bit about that brief and about the tribes' interests here? Sure. Um, well, tribes occupy a special space in environmental regulation. In many cases, the government um, protects their interests through federal laws, and they rely on the protections of federal laws to protect their both official lands over which they have jurisdiction, the lands where they are sovereigns, but also lands that are historically theirs. And while they may not be under their property are actually very significant culturally, historically for those, for those, for those tribes as well. And so what our brief said is that the tribes rely on the Clean Water Act and those federal protections for a lot. This is not an abstract thing to them and that many states will not protect their interests if the federal government is not there to do it. For example, if you are a tribe that is downstream from one of these areas that's threatened by mining development or by oil and gas infrastructure development, and those areas are no longer protected by the Clean Water Act, the water that inevitably comes out of those areas that comes through those wetlands or that is no longer protected by those wetlands is degraded. And under the current statutory framework, that is to say the one that we've been operating under for the last 50 years, the tribes have lots of opportunities to actually do something about it. They can comment, uh, they can ask the federal government for uh, intervention, they can, do, they can do a variety of things to protect their interests. And in this situation that the petitioners, the Sackets are envisioning, the tribes would not have that protection. And so Earth Justice filed this to say this isn't just about the states and the federal government, there are important other sovereigns that have been sovereigns over this land for far longer than the federal government and the states. So can you give me an example of what you mean about how this would all play out for the tribes? So, for example, one of the tribes we represent, the Pueblo of Laguna, um, they would lose somewhere between 80 to 97 percent of the protections for their waters because the Rio Puerco in New Mexico flows through that area. And a lot of those waters and the areas are either intermittent or they're wetlands. And depriving those areas of Clean Water Act protection would radically change the situation for the Pueblo of Laguna. Um, there's places in the Midwest along the St. Louis River where tribes have been harvesting wild rice for for centuries, millennia, time immemorial in the legal terms. Again, these are areas that would lose protections. Uh, and in the Pacific Northwest along the Skagit River, uh, the Swinomish tribe, another one of our clients, would lose a lot of wetlands protection that are critical for juvenile salmon, stuff that, you know, a species and a, and a resource that they've relied on again for millennia. So 
Let's dip our toes a little bit more, indeed, to the uh, turbid water of these arguments. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of opportunity for, for I know, puns I'm sorry, I couldn't help talking myself. about this case. No, myself. no, I don't blame you. <laughs> okay, so one thing that sticks out was just so much discussion of the word adjacent. And naturally, what that word means here depends on who you ask. So Schiff was like, well, obviously, it means things that touch, especially when you're talking about quote-unquote natural features. But a number of the justices were like, mm, that doesn't even match the common definition of the word. So here's an example of that dynamic in an exchange between Schiff and Justice Elena Kagan with a little Katanji Brown Jackson at the end. However, the example that I was going to give is if I were to say that I own two adjacent parcels of land, I don't think anyone would just th simply think that I meant I own two parcels of land in the neighborhood. But that necessarily implies that they're physically touching. And it's that particular... Well, let me give you another example. I grew up in an apartment building in New York City. If I say there are two adjacent apartment buildings, do they have to be touching each other or could be... You know, one is across a side street, you know? Again, just I mean, I would say that those, you know, those two apartment buildings are adjacent to each other because there's no other apartment building in between them, even if they're not touching each other. Again, Justice Kagan, I would say that when we're speaking specifically about physical topographic features, natural features like wetlands and other water bodies, I think that physically touching requirement is essential and is the, the meaning of adjacency as used in 404G. That is, in fact, actually... Mr. Schiff, um, isn't the issue what Congress would have intended with respect to adjacency? And there was a regulation that defined adjacency to include neighboring. And as far as I know, Congress used the term adjacency and didn't adjust it to try to make clear the uh, touching requirement that you say uh, was intended by the term. Would you like to talk a little bit about adjacency? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me talk about something even more general, which is the difficulties of doing these sort of complex environmental judgments in a courtroom without pictures, right? Because there they are in the court. They don't have the pictures. They can't talk about the you know. Far removed from the situation where you have a bunch of people with law degrees and who have to make adjacency analogies using apartment buildings in Manhattan, <laughs> talking about how this law should be interpreted. Well, Congress knew how it wanted to do this, which is to give the agencies these judgments. And instead, what's happening is because of the way this court is approaching the case, everybody is trying to figure out what one word means. And what Justice Jackson is pointing out is Congress was trying to do something with this big law. Can we just focus on what they were trying to do? The rivers were on fire. Wetlands were being lost at this incredible rate. All this stuff was happening. Can we interpret these words in light of those things rather than trying to figure out what they mean by looking at apartment buildings in Manhattan? Like, you know, Justice <laughs> right. Kagan is, is not saying she's trying to illustrate that these words have slippery meanings. Right. And that trying to pin them down without thinking about what Congress was trying to do and what the nation needs is a fool's errand and one yet that this court and certainly the petitioners in this case seem interested in doing. Yeah. I mean, I guess the language in the statute is is something like 
wetlands adjacent there too, correct? Isn't that right? It, it, the portion that they're talking about, which is these wetlands that are adjacent to these navigable waters, which are, you know, uh, and it's all bound up in the waters of the United States or WOTUS. So I, I did find, I was just like, oh my God, I don't think I ever want to hear the word adjacent ever again. Yeah. Because it did seem like sort of, I mean, I, I felt like, <laughs> well, we can talk a little more about this, but I just, I, I felt like, you know, Schiff was just sort of like, winging it right like he's like this is what adjacent means <laughs> well he's winging it because it doesn't make any sense and he knows it and uh what's tricky with these textual things these hard bright line textual arguments is even when you come up against hardcore textualists people who are really interested in in the words people like justice kavanaugh and justice barrett and justice roberts will say like well if it, if it can only mean one thing, it, it doesn't make sense, right? So under your definition, this would happen. And wait a minute, even the Trump administration didn't want to do what you want to do, right? Right. And so, and, uh, you know, the Mr. Schiff really struggled to try to put a persuasive position together in terms of legal strategy. What that did was open up a big middle space for what could be the rule here, which is never really what you want to do as a as an advocate, because he didn't even really want to play on what other rules that could could be could be put in. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Yeah, well, let's talk about uh, Kavanaugh and Barrett here for a second because I felt, you know, broadly speaking, right, it, it, it felt like some of the justices would would be sort of happy to dismantle the the science, the the expertise that's baked into the Clean Water Act, while others, you know, Kavanaugh and Barrett come quickly to mind, seemed a, more skeptical of Schiff's position. And at, at one point, to your Trump point, Kavanaugh says, well, why is it that like seven prior administrations have disagreed with your position? So let's hear a bit of that exchange. Definitional Last question. Why did seven straight administrations not agree with you? Well, I wouldn't quite say it's seven straight. At least the, uh, under the Trump administration, their proposal was certainly closer to, to what the No, let's be clear. They said that it would still be covered even if it was separated by a berm or dune, for example. No, uh, th- that is correct. And, and under your test, that would not be covered. That is correct, Justice Kavanaugh. And I don't presume to, to, to know more than, than those, those seven prior administrations. But what I do know is what is the text that Congress has used. And nothing can supersede that. Thank you. 
Although I guess you are presuming, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what maybe I wouldn't presume to know more. I would however. just presume to, however, my client presumes that he doesn't like or they don't like what's going right. on here. Look, what you're seeing there is exactly what I, I talked about. It's right. just as Kavanaugh is saying, you know, you have this very bright line test and it seems to create some really not sensible results. And this this problem with this bright line test is what this court is over and over and over getting itself into by focusing so excessively, not excessively, focusing so intently on the text and really refusing to consider what expert scientific agencies are saying about how these rules should work. The modern Supreme Court is really anti-agency. Frankly, it's anti-science. And uh, it, it is struggling to make sense of these complex environmental laws because it's trying very hard to do it. Uh, in a purely legal way without considering context, facts, science, and reality. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and here's, while Kavanaugh is saying, yeah, well, wait a minute. There there were other points where he he and others seem to be feeling, you know, something for the sackets, right? And so oh, yeah. it's like, we have a clip uh, of Kavanaugh again talking with Fletcher. Language. But the text doesn't say, in referring to adjacent in 1344G, whether that means bordering or contiguous and stop there, or also include neighboring as the regulation does. And as I understand the case really, as your brief set it out, comes down to, okay, what about a wetland separated by a berm or dune or by a dike or levee? And on that question, I, I suppose since Congress hasn't specified that it goes that extra step, why not let Congress figure out where the line is. I mean, I think that's the toughest hurdle you face is that Congress, we've gotten, as Justice Alito says, from waters to adjacent and now from contiguous or neighboring to uh, contiguous or bordering to also uh, neighboring. And shouldn't that be Congress's job? So what's your general response to that? So I think if you look at 1344G in context, Congress has answered this question. We think you'd get there past just directly abutting and to neighboring on the dictionary definitions alone, the definitions we cite at page 22 of our brief. But I don't think you need those here because of the history against which Congress acted. So in other words, I feel like he's trying to thread the needle a little bit, right? Perhaps. I don't know. I want to know what you make of all of it. Like, and also just more broadly, like what, what, you, what struck you about the arguments. So Kavanaugh's entire approach to this is one that would not be, have been an approach of the court, of, certainly not of a majority of the court, 20 or 25 years ago. That court would have said, well, it's clear what the, the, the Congress is trying to do here. We're not going to... We're not going to obsess over this or that. We're also going to think about the history of the statute. We're also going to think about the background facts against which Congress was regulated, was regulating. And um, and Kavanaugh talks a little bit about that. But this kind of kabuki dance about dictionary definitions and microparsing of when this happened and when that happened is a very new model. And it is a very pro-industry model of reading statutes, because the more narrowly you are parsing these things and the more you insist that judges make the decisions and not the scientists and not the experts in protection, the more you're going to end up protecting only what the industries want to protect. Uh, on that, I think it's a, a decent time to circle back to something that you said earlier, which is that just because the Sackett's property was considered a protected wetland under the Clean Water Act does not mean that they cannot build there at all, right? So 
this brings me to a question, or maybe two, about the role of the federal government versus the state governments where clean water legislation and regulations are concerned. Because there was a lot of that, you know, federal government regulation, bad energy going on during the arguments. And, the, and there was like the suggestion at times that perhaps it would be just different if the states had more control. And I think, I, I don't know that if that were the case, there'd be a reason to think these challenges went away. So what I'm hoping is that you can tell us about the various roles that the feds and, and the states play here. And is it reasonable to buy into this notion that if the states were the ones taking the reins, that like the Sacketts and the groups that support them would just like be completely jiggy with those state environmental regulations? Well, first of all, the many industries that are on the side of the Sacketts are not big fans of state regulation. In fact, uh, they are busily arguing in the case of the Clean Air Act that states like California can't have their own regulations about air quality or tailpipe emissions from cars. That that kind of state regulatory authority is inconsistent. There, as soon as the states want to do something a little stronger, they say, no, 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 you can't. Similarly, the it's important for all of us to remember that the reason the Congress passed the Clean Water Act in 1972 was before that, it was the states who were in charge of protecting waters. And it was a disaster. It was a disaster. The reason Congress passed the Clean Water Act is because empirically it had failed, you know, leaving it to the states. And also, Structurally, it's not surprising, right? States don't have a whole lot of reasons to protect the water that goes downstream to other states. They also have a, a race to the bottom where the state that puts the least environmental regulations in place probably gets the most industries to move in there. So there's a whole lot of structural reasons why federal protections matter and make a lot of sense. Additionally, one thing that these folks talking about state regulation will not want to talk about is the fact that most of the Clean Water Act is actually administered by states. That is to say, it's a federal law, but states actually run the programs, and the states really like to run the programs, and they can run the programs. In some areas, however, those states have, whenever they take them over, the federal government kind of has to supervise this because many times the states don't really want to actually do it. They want the money for the regulatory programs, but they don't actually want to protect things. Again, there's a lot of pressure from local developers. There's a lot of pressure to race to the bottom and to not worry about downstream states. So um, there's a tremendous amount that is left to state regulation. For example, most agricultural pollution, water pollution, is not at all covered by the Federal Clean Water Act. Most, uh, most of that is left to the states. Not most. All of it's really left to the states. And that has been a disaster. Most pollution of our nation's waterways uh, and the, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico and all sorts of other things are the result of agricultural pollution that hasn't been handled by the states. Um, so anyway, when, when folks are saying we want state regulation, that's actually code for we don't want regulation. One more thing I would be remiss in, in failing to mention here, many states have laws prohibiting them from putting in regulations that would protect these things. Many states are, you know, their, their own legislatures have said, if the federal government doesn't protect it, we won't protect it either. So again, states' rights, <laughs> just as it was with the Civil Rights Act, is in fact code for no regulation, no laws. 
throughout this Dissent miniseries, we've talked a lot about how the court really sets its own agenda. And one of the startling things in this case is that the court took it while agencies were in the middle of making new rules, which seems bonkers to me. Justice Elena Kagan made a point of acknowledging this. The 2015 rules we discussed tried to draw some bright line rules. Those were criticized as arbitrary and over-inclusive, which is the problem with bright line rules, that the over-inclusive or under-inclusive. But I certainly think there is a range of reasonable understandings of what adjacency means. And also, I know you're focused on that, but significant nexus. Did, did I just understand you to say that the rule that you're issuing may, in fact, have more guidance than we currently have as to what adjacency means? I don't want to represent what's coming in the forthcoming rule because it's not issued yet. And by definition, the agencies haven't finished their deliberation. I, I will say they've sought comment on how to cash out, how to crystallize this significant nexus test and the adjacency framework that it is a part of. And they've also said that even after this rulemaking, they're interested When is in, the rulemaking coming down? So it's with OMB now. It's public that in September it went over to the Office of Management and Budget for Interagency Review. The agencies have told me that they still expect to issue it by the end of the year. So you have subject matter experts, scientists, <laughs> working on updated rules. And then you have the Supreme Court kind of pluck this case out and put it on its docket. So maybe you could talk about that and how it sort of fits with this agenda-setting theme and, and what it means for the court to be taking the case now, knowing that rulemaking is going on. Look, this is the clearest sign ever that what we have with this conservative supermajority right now is a highly aggressive deregulatory court. Because a court that was just trying to get it right and just trying to offer stability to regulated parties, to have the machinery of government work well, would never have taken this case while the government was on the brink of issuing new regulations in this area. That is totally contrary to the understanding of the way the Supreme Court has operated. And that is something that everybody learned in law school when I was in law school, and I think is still being taught in law school, but they're now throwing asterisks up on that all the time. Why does it matter to wait until the other branches of government have their say? Well, that's because the other branches of the government can do science. The other branches of the government do policy. The other government parts of the government can, can wade through all of the potential consequences of reading the law one way or the other and offer those judgments up in sophisticated legal regulations. And when the Supreme Court hears one case and reads a word like adjacent and tries to make sense of it from the dictionary and rules before the government comes out with an explanation of this, it means that it's taking power away from our policy branches and grabbing them to these unelected judges who sit on the Supreme Court. That is the line that is precisely the line that the conservative movement used 30 or 40 years ago to complain about judges taking power away. But now that they're in a situation where the country is largely in favor of environmental protections and doesn't want to see these laws changed, they've gone to the courts and they've gotten themselves a hyper-conservative Supreme Court that is willing to do these things. And this court doesn't need to see those regulations because this court, at least many of the justices, don't care what the science says. Well, and also this swooping in amid rulemaking, isn't that also what happened with the Clean Air Act case that they took up in the last term, the West Vir isn't it the West Virginia case? That's right. I I'm Once again, the Supreme Court was... <laughs> 
Well, the court is um, incredibly eager to put its stamp on this country. And uh, I, when I, I worked at the court, like I said, 20 years ago for a woman named Justice O'Connor, who had a profoundly different vision of the role of the Supreme Court in American society, which is one that issued rulings as infrequently as possible and in as restrained a manner as possible, recognizing that when the court answers something, debate stops that it doesn't really allow for the rest of government to be engaged. And that the, and she recognized that we make mistakes all the time. And once we write an opinion about this, it's hard for us to undo those mistakes. This court doesn't feel that way. It feels that it knows what it's doing and it can't wait to do the things it wants to do. And one of the things that it clearly wants to do is restrict the role of the federal government in protecting the health and welfare of people. Yeah, and, and just as a side note, um, it sounded in arguments like those new rules were imminent. Have they been released? They were released at the end of last year in December. Oh. And the federal government, the EPA, sent a polite note into the Supreme Court that said, well, um, as Mr. Fletcher predicted, we did actually get these rules out. And we're unsure of what to say to you. I mean, it didn't literally say that, but geez, maybe you should take a look at these. But I guess you really can't because you said that you took the case and the regulations aren't there. So it creates a real problem because now we have new regulations that are out, that are the law of the land, and we have a Supreme Court case uh, that is reviewing a situation from before these new regulations came out. Is there, I mean, I don't know if there's a way to even summarize if, how different the rules are or what's, if there's any significant change in the rules? Yeah, so, um before the Obama administration, everybody was operating on a set of regulations that were generally referred to as the 1986 regulations. And those those were sort of the law of the land for uh, that that had been the case for since the Clean Water Act was 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 created. In 2015, the Obama administration issued new rules that uh, would have clarified uh, and expanded the scope of this a little bit. Those rules were immediately enjoined. Uh, the courts uh, uh, said, no, no way. We want to look at these more carefully. Um, in the meantime, the Trump administration came in, put out an extremely narrow rule for what would be protected. Although, as you said, not as narrow as what the, the Sackets want, but a very narrow rule. That rule too got uh, enjoined in a case brought by Earth Justice because it just didn't follow the text of the act at all. Um, and now we have a new Biden rule. And in summary, what I would say is the Biden rule is significantly more conservative in its reach than the Obama administration's rule. It strives to kind of make sense of this adjacency wording, and it strives to honor the intent of Congress to protect the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the, of the waters by trying to make clear that what we need to protect are the wetlands that have this close relationship with the surface waters um, that we all think of as being most obviously protected. So it in includes a ton of context sensitive stuff about how to figure that out. As, you, as we've pointed out, it talks about the resources that people have in order to figure out what is covered and what isn't. Um, it's, a, it's a very deeply scientifically based, and in fact, you know, if you went through and read all the science that it's based on, it's just a colossal record uh, of information that the agency reviewed in trying to come up with this rule. You were a guest last year on Strict Scrutiny, and there was something that you said back then that stuck with me. It was essentially making the point that environmental laws are often written broadly and that they need to be written that way. Um, 
I'm kind of more used to in my 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 sort of daily work life of of thinking about laws like penal code violations, which are, you know, pretty specific. So could you explain why environmental laws are written the way they are and and why that matters? Sure. Well, um, we are learning more about the environment every, first of all, we're learning more about the environment every day. And our understanding of what threats are out there today is very different than the understanding of Congress from 10 or 15 let alone 50 years ago. We have threats that we're facing now that uh, are to water that weren't clearly in the minds of Congress back then. There are chemical compounds that chemical companies are creating and putting into the waterways that didn't exist back then. So if Congress had said, this is the list of pollution that is not allowed, uh, the pollutants that you aren't allowed to put in the water, they would have missed a ton of things. So they said, here's what pollutant means. It means, and the definition of pollutant, by the way, in the Clean Water Act is enormous. <laughs> it's, it's basically anything you put in there. And it's written that way because of two reasons. One is the Congress knew it couldn't predict exactly what was gonna need to be protected in the future. And number two, there was this important entity in between Congress and the public, and that is these regulatory agencies. And the regulatory agencies are the ones that review the science, that conduct the studies, that pay for more science to be done to figure out how to actually implement these laws in a sensible way. And of course, those agencies aren't you know, running off completely on their own. They're run by political appointees. So. The people who are running those things are people who are selected by elected officials, and there's very much political control over this. So if Congre- and Congress also can say, can step in and say, hey, well, wait a minute, you, the agency, aren't getting it quite right. We are going to rewrite the law in a certain way to fix things, which they did in 1977. So writing laws in a broad way gives scientific experts flexibility to write regulations that reflect what's on the ground. And it allows those laws to serve future generations and to give you real protections for the environment where very specific and narrowly worded things would need to constantly be updated every every day, if not every, every year, if not every day. Yeah. Well, it doesn't seem that this uh, 6-3 supermajority, super conservative court really likes this broad writing because <laughs> um, it maybe doesn't fit with their sort of philosophy. I'm just kind of curious. It seems that they just kind of hate it. Maybe it has to do with the fact that they hate the regulatory state, or I don't know, or this court in particular. I mean, they don't seem to like these broadly written laws. And so I'm just kind of curious if you have any thoughts on that. Well, the court has this um, broad animus. These judges were selected for their adherence to a philosophy that... um, these unelected bureaucrats in EPA have no business deciding how these things should be done. Instead, these unelected judges, who are completely unaccountable politically, should be the ones deciding how these things get done. So there's a real hostility in this court to, to uh, the idea that scientific judgment, expertise, and process outside the courtroom or Congress uh, should be a part of our nation's regulatory structure. And that's uh, a profoundly deregulatory worldview, right? That's profoundly one that leads you to a place where industries have more latitude uh, and where protections get 
pulled back. And that's why it, it's, it's always a one-way ratchet downwards when you have that that kind of a view. And where the Cuyahoga River is suddenly ablaze again. <laughs> That's right. And this is not, this isn't a great direction uh, for the court to be taking it. And we're not just seeing it, right, in the Clean Water Act. We're seeing it in COVID protections. We're seeing it in voting rights protections. We're seeing it across the board where the court is, is pulling back on the role of protections in the government for people. So to end, I'd like to, to back up and get a broad view about what's at stake in this case. So maybe first you could lay that out in terms of immediate impacts, but then second, could you put it into the context of the climate crisis and how what happens here might impact our ability to address climate change? Sure. Well, let's let's step those through those from the bottom up. So I would start by saying that in some of the worst case scenarios that one could imagine if the Supreme Court wrote its opinion in certain ways, up to 45 million acres of wetlands could lose protections in this country. So 45 million acres of wetlands that you couldn't pollute, you can't pollute today, you suddenly could pollute. People could just say, well, I can fill it in, I can, I can pollute it, I can do whatever I want. Next level, the, as climate change stresses our environment, removing the protections for all those wetlands, smaller waterways of all kinds, becomes all the more problematic because we know that all these environments are deeply stressed by climate change already. We know that flooding and drought are becoming an increasingly big problem. So by taking away protections for waterways and wetlands, you're exacerbating the scale of the climate crisis, right? And then at the third level, in order to combat the climate crisis, we're going to need strong environmental laws and regulations. And we're going to need expert agencies figuring out how we can make all these things happen. How can we reform our transmission grid? What kind of pollution is okay? What kind of standards are not? How do we figure out how to reduce emissions from all kinds of different things in ways that are going to help us survive as a species, as a nation, as individuals? And if you have a Supreme Court that is profoundly anti-regulatory state and anti-regulation, you make it much more difficult for the government to actually do what most people want, which is confront those problems. More than three in four people support federal protections for water. Most people want the federal government to do more about climate change. And the Supreme Court is going in the other direction, taking the government out of the game at a time when it needs to be most in it. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. You're more than welcome. Thank you for doing this. You know, anytime somebody wades into the Supreme Court, environmental law, whatever, you know, um, I'm always eager to help out because this is not easy stuff and it's really important. But it's not, you know, like some issues like abortion or voting or whatever are kind of, they naturally, people can naturally understand them. You don't need to read the law to understand what's going on. But on things like this, Somebody like you, you really got to dig in to kind of figure out what the questions should be, read the argument, try to figure out what the heck is going on. So I appreciate it that you did that. And that's it for this episode of Descent, a production of The Intercept. This episode was produced by Jose Olivares and Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixed our show. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time, I'm Jordan Smith.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.